Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're doing a bit of a follow up to our Evolution of Access, that's a PT125 episode, by looking at the evolution of writers' room sizes, episode orders, curation of shows, essentially less TV generally, and how they all have an impact on professional and creative opportunities. <laughs> So just to reset for our listeners, what brought us on this topic was actually an article in Vanity Fair from Maureen Ryan that was published last month, where she interviewed Michael Schur, who obviously is the person behind Parks and Rec and The Good Place, about not just the evolution of TV, but specifically the amount of episode orders that were happening on his shows and how basically he went from a show like Parks and Rec, which ran for many, many seasons, to something like The Good Place, which was much more of a limited run series with few episodes and how that impacts, especially creatively, but also professionally, television itself. And so in this episode, we really wanted to dig into how Overall, this impacts both the business side uh, in terms of staffing and OTTs and so forth, but also creatively speaking, how that influences the way you write those shows. And so, Nick, if you want to tell us sort of about the issue at hand. Honestly, the main culprit, I guess, with this current issue at hand is this diminishing episode order and shorter seasons overall when it comes to television shows. Uh, we've seen over the last X amount of years that the episode orders for TV shows have been shrinking and shrinking. So the gold standard for a season length traditionally has been 22 episodes. Uh, that goes for both comedy series and drama series. And that just sort of mapped out to being a good amount of a run of a season on classic you know, broadcast TV and that sort of thing. And then we've seen that shrinking over the years to, you know, half of that to 13 being the new normal for quite an amount of time. And then even now we're getting that cut down to 10 instead of 13. Sometimes we're seeing eight, sometimes we're even seeing six, depending on the series. So it's really just shrinking these shows to a half or a quarter of what they used to be. Traditionally, the goal was to end up with at least 100 episodes on your show. That might be five seasons of a 22 episode order or 10 seasons of a, a 10 or 13. And that was because of this thing called syndication, where once you had that many episodes of a show, you were able to sell it on to local affiliates, local broadcasters who could do what they called sort of stripping the show and just sort of placing reruns whenever they wanted throughout their thing. And that was the golden number for how many episodes they needed to be able to play it for the length of their sort of broadcast season uh, in order for you to make that sweet, sweet advertising money and revenue money from all of that. I think now for most shows, you're lucky to get to, I think they said 30 or 40 episodes in the article with Mike Sure. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the real shift here in terms of the business side is that we move from essentially linear TV to OTTs. And so what that means is OTTs essentially need to justify their own existences. They need to justify why you should be spending five or $10 a month on their particular service. And the way they go about doing that is by having the most amount of content. And the most amount of content isn't necessarily about, you know, the number of episodes that a certain show is going to have, but rather the amount of different shows they have. It's about, you know, quantity as opposed to prioritizing quality. Hopefully there's quality behind it, but uh, that's not necessarily their main focus in terms of the long run. Whereas for linear TV, uh, especially historically speaking, you only had, I mean, obviously with the advent of cable, it changed a little bit. But generally speaking, you only had so many networks to work with. And so you had to choose, essentially, you had this grid of programming they needed to fill, and it was a very specific amount of content that needed to be filled in that grid. And as long as that was filled and people could tune in, you know, it was sort of the idea of appointment schedule. 
as long as you could tune in every Friday night to see that show or Wednesday night or whenever it was, then the network and the studios and everybody would be happy to just have that recurring quote unquote revenue of that show happening. And so really, despite the fact that a show can still run five or 10 seasons, just because there's no practical difference between a show running for three episodes as opposed to 20 episodes in terms of the view engagement, that does explain in part why we are seeing this shrinking episode order. There's no practical difference for Netflix, for example, for a viewer to watch one show for 22 episodes as opposed to, uh, you know, one show for three episodes, practically speaking. Yeah, exactly. I think from the studio's perspective, there's no longer that big financial incentive to have such a huge run of episodes to sell on because we don't have that traditional broadcast syndication model really existing anymore. And the residuals for that used to be so lucrative for a lot of people. But now with this shift to OTT and streaming, streaming residuals are you know a big issue that's come up a lot in the writers' negotiations because they are so paltry compared to anything else. So you know, you're really not making quite as much money off of that anymore, and it doesn't incentivize people to make that much content for these old kind of, you know, I guess now outdated models of of revenue. So the irony in all of this, too, is that on these streaming services, a lot of the most successful shows, the big draw cards that get people signing up for them in the first place, are these legacy sitcoms that have close to 100 episodes. Your Friends, The Office, Parks and Rec, 30 Rock, Frasier. You know, people love to watch reruns of their favorite shows, and they love that there are so many of them that they can just kind of put it on in the background, or they can spend a solid week just binging their favorite show again. So I think in a way, personally, a lot of these streamers are shooting themselves in the foot by not allowing a space anymore more for these kind of juggernauts and 100 episode shows to be made anymore. I definitely agree with that statement. And just the fact that if you look at the amount of content that has been consumed, like you said, a lot of it is those pre-acquired shows with that sort of back catalog of Time Warner or Disney or Viacom and so forth that have a lot of those shows that last seasons upon seasons upon seasons. And in fact, uh, just recently, CBS All Access did a whole revealing because of the, you know, the whole Viacom aspect of it, where now you have the whole BET and MTV library on CBS All Access, and MTV has a huge back catalog of shows, both scripted and unscripted, that have lasted for seasons and seasons. Something like The Challenge, uh, I think that's on season uh, 33 or 35 or thereabouts, so pretty much as long as something like Survivor. So they have a lot of back catalog, but all of that is on linear TV. None of it is really existing or an original show from online and OTTs. In fact, I'm hard-pressed to think of a show on uh, that is an OTT original on any OTT, whether that's Hulu, Netflix, CBS All Access, et cetera, et cetera, that has lasted anywhere close to over 60 episodes. I really can't think of anything. Maybe I'm, my mind just went blank for a second, but that just shows that they're really banking on that back catalog for a lot of those heavy hitter shows. Like you mentioned, like Friends and The Office and HBO Max's whole campaign is a lot. I mean, part of it is Justice League, but part of it is also on Friends being on that service. And Peacock, a lot of that is on The Office being on that service and and so forth. So to your point, I mean, I'm a bit skeptical to see if we'll ever have an OTT really, at least in uh, in the short term, maybe in medium term, they'll figure it out. But an OTT realizing that those longer tail episodes or longer tail seasons and series have a chance of gaining viewership 
and ultimately producing those shows. And I think part of the the problem here is also gauging why they're producing those shows in the first place. Because like I said uh, moments ago, ultimately view engagement, I, I would argue is more important than viewer fidelity in that capacity where, you know, something like The Office and Friends lasted so long in part because so many people were watching those shows for so long and they were fine sort of having that appointment viewing idea with sort of like the water cooler show week after week after week for years and years and that creating sort of an impact on American culture whereas for an OTT it's so targeted even something I mean Netflix is probably the closest to a sort of a general you know like a network type uh, OTT but overall like something like CBS and even Hulu they are all super targeted to the audience to some extent I don't know how they could justify creating a show that, I mean, as much as I want to, obviously this whole episode that on Paper Team is about, you know, why it's a good idea to have longer shows, but I'm struggling to see sort of their incentive to why they would do like a law and order type show that's a Peacock exclusive outside of obviously the brand, but just having that run as like a hundred episode show. And the issue has kind of always been that the longer a show runs, the more and more expensive it gets because you have to keep giving the the cast a raise and giving them episodes to direct and promoting all the writers and you know all this sort of thing too. And just the further it goes on, uh, it certainly doesn't get any cheaper. So there's there's little financial incentive for them to do another five seasons of a show that's already run for five seasons. On top of that, and I think that's why we're seeing so many shows get canceled after one or two seasons, even if they were really good shows that were critically well received, that were very popular. Uh, you know, these streaming services, they have their own metrics by which they're judging these things. And if it's not doing what it needs to do for them, or if it's already done its job, then they will cut their ties and, you know, allow them to take it someplace else. Yeah, absolutely. And that to me is the crux of the issue in terms of there's no incentive ultimately for them to go for those longer shows and longer seasons and episode orders, because as long as they have three different three episode shows, it's better than one show uh, that runs for nine or even 10 episodes. Because in terms of advertising the package of the OTT and justifying their own existence, it's an easier sell to say, hey, here's three shows, as opposed to here's this one very detailed show that you will just love. So now that we've looked at sort of overall the issue at hand about the episode orders and and diminishing seasons and so forth, let's look at really the impact for writers, especially for staffing opportunities, money, cash money for people and how that directly impacts writing opportunities. Right. So I think the most obvious thing that's going to happen when you have shorter runs of shows with fewer episodes is uh, the writers are getting shorter contracts. The writers are getting paid less money because they are working for less time in the year. Usually your stock standard average, say staff writer contract would be a 20 week guarantee. Uh, You have 20 weeks in a writer's room to work on that show to do your best job. You get paid a decent amount of money for that amount of time. And then, you know, for a traditional show that runs for maybe 22 episodes, that 20 weeks wouldn't even cover the full room. So you kind of reach a point in the back nine episodes of the season after the first 13, where they decide if they want to keep those writers on or if they want to move on and bring other people in for the rest of it. So, you know, you're ending up working 20 weeks at minimum, and if you're lucky, maybe another 10 to 20 weeks on top of that to cover the rest of the episodes in the season. The big thing here is that the development schedule really changes a lot based on whether it's a network and an OTT. And as soon as you move towards a more premium platform, the development cycle is more akin to a feature film where you are working on this one project for 
a relatively long or longer amount of time, potentially. Uh, conversely, that also means that if you divide the number of episodes between writers and so forth, you're going to get like less of a percentage. And, you know, sort of like if you were to tally your salary based on the amount of hours that you've put onto this specific project, something like a network show with 22 episodes, you would get a higher amount of revenue per week, especially in that shorter week guarantee, than something like an OTT type show that is going to run for a long time in that room. And maybe your contract is going to get extended, uh, but you may not get the same amount of episodes behind it. And so that's definitely one key thing is just the amount of weekly salary that, that you can depend upon. That contract is going to be either longer or shorter, depending on the length of the show. And there's also the trickle down effect that because of the shorter seasons, there's a lack of job stability overall, especially, again, if you look at premium cable and OTT shows, there's a huge gap that's getting larger and larger between seasons. It used to be that, you know, the traditional network season would dictate that around spring, you have staffing season, and then you essentially would cycle all the way back to the next year and have a little bit of leeway in terms of a couple of months uh, hiatus at the top of the year or something like that. Whereas now, because of cable and because of OTTs and so forth, there's no real clear season per se, because any show can happen at any time. And so that it also means that you may be working a full year on this one season, and then there's a whole year hiatus because production needs to be happening on this season that you're writing all 13 episodes ahead of time on. Basically, that means you won't be seeing another, you know, scent or uh, of a writer's room uh, for another year after that. Uh, so you better hope that you get staffed on something else in between. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you look at the difference between uh, your traditional broadcast shows where you're working for 20, 30 weeks, you know exactly when <laughs> the broadcast schedule comes out, you know when they have to make a decision about to pick something up for another season and they're upfronts and that sort of thing. And so you have a little bit more of a roadmap towards when you may or may not be working again. But you know, once you get to cable and streaming, you really don't know that, especially in things like animation too. Like the production process for that is so long and you know in a similar way to you were saying Alex with uh, a lot of the streamers who were kind of developing stuff with a very long road ahead of them. You know, I worked for a show that was originally a 10 week guarantee and then it expanded out to 15 and that was the full room for the season. And then it was uh, an entire year before they knew anything about the next season. And I think that room got an even shorter run than that again. So it just really is no guarantee at all of any sort of job stability. Yeah. I mean, like you said, even the show that you worked on, that presumably you would expect some kind of continuity or legacy in terms of the length of the contract and the week guarantees. There's no guarantee anywhere, really, because the market is shifting in such a way, especially now with COVID and everything, that these episode orders are getting cut off. I mean, one of the shows that I worked on went from 10 episodes to four episodes, in part because of the production stop. But overall, it just didn't make sense to create this whole season that may or may not be produced. Plus, again, it's like we feel like this one season can run just as well in these sort of like this mini season, which I mean, that's a whole other conversation. But overall, you just don't have that same length and guarantee. And conversely, and this is actually something that was just addressed in the recent WGA NBA negotiations, but because of the carryover from those older sort of networky type contracts, you had these exclusivity clauses that uh, were put in place in terms of you couldn't really staff elsewhere whilst you were working on specific shows. And obviously in the era where those seasons last maybe, you know, three months, let's say, of your time out of 12 months of the year, you need to survive for the other nine of that year. So really, I'm glad that the WGA has actually been looking into that. And that's been a benefit, actually, of the new uh, NBA. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those weren't really that much of an issue if you were working on a show 40 weeks out of the year and then you just took, you know, a three month holiday and came right back the next year for another run of network television. But like you said, it's it's a totally different landscape now. And the issue there too is that a lot of upper level writers are paid per episode fees. They're, you know, sort of producer level writers. They don't get paid a weekly. They instead get paid an episodic fee. And so if it's, you know, again, the fewer episodes there are, the less money they're getting and the more time in between each of those episodes, the less money they're getting because you're averaging it out over that whole thing. If it's an eight episode run, but they're there for 30 weeks, they're really not getting that much money at all. And it really averages itself out down to a minimum. And that's another issue that I've been looking to address as well. Yeah, absolutely. And to that idea, I mean, that whole setup has another kind of trickle down effect, which creates essentially smaller writer's rooms overall, especially top heavy rooms where because of the diminishing amount of episodes, let's say we go from 22 to a six episode type show, there's a lot more incentive to have fewer and fewer writers because there's already fewer and fewer episodes to dole out those episodes too. And especially if you look at creatively speaking, we're also, and, and this is something we've talked about previously, but just the model overall is in favor of those more auteur-ish type ideas like True Detective, where you have like someone like Nick Pizzolato who's writing a lot of those episodes and doing a lot of the heavy lifting. But that conversely means there's not a room per se. Uh, something like Game of Thrones, you don't have one episode, you have multiple episodes per the season. And yet, even though they had like sort of a, a semi-writer's room, especially in the first season, but the more you went uh, deeper into that show, Enough and Weiss were just writing most, if not all the episodes, and then they had their, uh, at the time, uh, assistant who then became a staff writer, and then you had a couple other people uh, on the back half to divide sort of a whole season's worth of content. And so overall, it just creates few opportunities at the bottom, you have fewer of those lower level slots, especially if if you only have five writers and four of those are mid to high level, that's a huge issue in the long run. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Rooms already had the issue of spending all their money on the higher level writers and then realizing they have no money left for the people at the lower level. So you're lucky to get one staff writer position at all. And, you know, then that staff writer position probably going to the writer's assistant or the showrunner's assistant or someone who's been there for years anyway. So, you know, writers on the outside who are just trying to break into the industry for the first time, there's really no spots for them available at all. And, you know, even within that room now, you have these support staff who are working so hard or working for a number of years on these shows, whether they're a script coordinator, writer's assistant, showrunner's assistant. And traditionally, you could expect after a couple of years that you might get a freelance episode, that you might get bumped up into staff writer at some point to be rewarded for your hard work and your institutional knowledge of this place. But there's less and less of that happening now, too, because if you only have eight episodes in a season, there aren't any freelance episodes to give to those people, and there aren't those staff writer positions to promote them into. And to that point, the fact that those shows run for such a long time with that few amount of episodes gives few opportunities by definition, because if you are working on show A that lasts a full year, and then there's a whole year gap between season two of show A, that support staff person needs to live right in that interim period and they can't really bank on sort of the the classic network type support staff idea that all right let me clock in a full season as the writer's pa and then the next season i'm going to be bumped up to writer's assistant and then the next season i'm going to be bumped up to staff writer that model has existed and still exists in some capacity but the vast majority of shows don't work that way so that's a bit of the lottery that you enter as a support staff but just to go back to that sort of contraction of a writer's room over Overall, I mean, 
ultimately, it also creates an element of competitivity that I don't feel like necessarily existed many years ago. Putting aside for a second the, you know, the amount of people wanting to be TV artists 10 years ago, whatever, you had fewer shows overall, but you had a lot more episodes being created within those shows. And so now you have a lot more opportunity in terms of shows. Generally speaking, you have a lot more outlets to go out to and, and a lot more studios and networks and production companies to pitch to and so forth, as we've talked about in prior episodes. But when those shows get picked up, there's very few slots being open on those shows, especially because a lot of those shows being sold, they're from known quantities, known producers, known showrunners, and so forth. So a show that is going to be picked up for three episodes, something that's going to be picked up for a specific uh, network or cable outlet or something like that, that showrunner, that producer attached may want to write all the episodes, or maybe him, her, and their co-writer will write all their episodes. And so even though that may be in in theory sort of an added opportunity in terms of oh here's another show that's being you know added to the landscape in reality, there's no job creation there because, you know, at least in the writer's room, because it's just one person or two people writing everything. So I would argue that like in the long run, I would want to see the WGA in the same way that they have mandated that freelance episode to sort of help bring in outsiders. I would want the WGA to bring in a mandatory staff writer position of some kind in every single show, regardless of the room size, to at least give access and open up a slot at the bottom that's mandated in every single show to give that the sort of leg up and justify, you know, sort of the existence of, all right, well, if you're a support staff, then at least there's the opportunity down the run to be a staff writer on the show. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a great idea. And, you know, just speaking to that upward mobility again for writers, when we do have these shorter season runs, uh, traditionally the way that promotions work between titles is that you spend one show as a staff writer, then on your next show, you're a story editor, then you're an executive story editor, co-producer, producer, et cetera. Uh, sometimes when you get to those higher levels, you'll spend a few more years there, but traditionally it's sort of like one show, then you move up to the next one. Unfortunately, now that we have these eight, 10, even 13 episode runs, a lot of showrunners and producers are saying that you need to spend a full 22 episodes in one title before you are eligible to be upgraded to the next. So you'll have someone working staff writer on two to three shows before however many episodes before they hit that 22 episode bump and someone will actually say, okay, now you can be a story editor. And I think that that's just another ridiculous barrier that they're putting in front of people in order to pay them less. And that really affects upper mobility and it affects diversity too. You get people who come in at a staff writer level and they're being forced to repeat and repeat and repeat. And then we're never getting actual new diverse voices at these higher levels to be able to create their own shows to be able to hire more diverse staff. So it's a really big issue. Just the fact that you have writers rooms with the number of writers in a single room can be from one to 10, let's say. And you have a lot of those rooms now that are going from originally, maybe 10 years ago, it was those 10 writers in a room. And now you have maybe a couple of those. And so I think the reason why they're creating those barriers of entry is because of the lack of slots. It creates a sense of scarcity overall that shouldn't exist. You know, the amount of content out there is astronomical. You have hundreds and hundreds of shows. John Langrath every year gives a rundown of how many shows on TV they are, and it's just insane. And yet there's not more opportunity, or at least it doesn't appear to be. And that's in part because of those rooms with 
shorter seasons, which means shorter episode orders, which means fewer writers in the room, which means top-heavy rooms, which means fewer lower-level slots, which means less uh, upward mobility, and so forth. It's sort of like the self-fulfilling prophecy of how this whole thing works, as opposed to mandating, all right, if we are going to do few episodes, then we need to dole those out equally, or we should give more credits to people, or we should allow you know the back half of the room, as, as, as opposed to the top, we should allow the bottom to get a little bit more credit and experience in some capacity. Um, because especially if you are a staff writer level or those lower level positions, the appeal in theory of those positions is essentially you're not going to get necessarily an episode credit, right? Because especially if there's a lot of episodes and uh, or, or rather a lot of writers for a certain amount of episodes, you're not guaranteed to get an episode. So that's I guess, fair game on some level, even though I slightly disagree with that idea. But let's, for a second, presume that's fine. Well, what is the incentive to be a staff writer in the show if, A, you're not going to get the title bump next season, and B, you're not even getting the length of experience that you should be expecting because those seasons are only running a few weeks as opposed to a true season, a full year on a show like a, a network show. So there's a lot less incentive for people to really even enter those lower-level positions now. Yeah, I mean, this would be a rough situation, even if every writer was able to consistently work throughout the year and go from show to show to show. But that's also not the reality of how it works. A lot of people spend six months, 12 months, even several years in between writing gigs. So if you have to repeat staff writer three times and then story editor twice, and meanwhile, you're having these gaps in between jobs and whatever, it could take you 10 years to get to producer level now instead of the three or four years that it traditionally did. So I think, and you know, and in each point you're getting paid less and you're working less and there's less guarantee. So it really is just a huge kind of roadblock in the way of having a career as a writer, these shorter seasons. Uh, the last thing we just want to say about this in terms of opportunities for writers is that all of this is the best case scenario where a studio has given the green light to a show and it's definitely going into production and you're getting in the room for it and what you write is going to end up on the air. But now we have this whole thing called a mini room that studios are setting up where they will hire a small writer's room to write X number of scripts. It might be three scripts. It might be an entire season of a show to effectively see if they like the show before they order it to production. It's not like, great, the pilot's good. We'll give you the thumbs up to go and write another 13 or 22 episodes. Now they're putting an extra step in before you even get any guarantee that your work is going to be on the air. That's been my experience on uh, my last two shows, actually, where it was sort of this purgatory where we were not sure. We were essentially picked up to be a show and potentially be, I mean, obviously a room, but it was this in between thing where are we essentially writing fan fiction here? Are we just writing spec scripts, uh, albeit uh, paid, but something that may never see the light of day? Is it something that's going to be stuck in development hell for years and years? What are we doing here? And I feel like, especially if you look at the feature world, the idea of development hell has been an ongoing issue for many years. But for TV, practically speaking, it's been shorter tail medium. It's always been some, the whole appeal of TV for a lot of people has always been, okay, I'm writing something and it's going to be produced then and there. If you look at a network schedule within a month, almost, you're going to be writing something and it's going to be produced and shot and aired the month after that. Uh, whereas now, because of OTT, Scable, and so forth, and the whole development cycle, now we're moving towards a feature model where uh, at first it was like, all right, let's spend an entire year writing sex episodes before we even produce any of them. And now it's not even that. It's let's write six episodes and then make our decision if we're going to be producing them. And that's a very dangerous or slippery slope because mentally speaking, morally speaking, 
how are people going to feel when they don't know if they were going to be produced? Well, I can tell you from personal experience, it doesn't feel great. You are living in this sort of this purgatory, as I was saying, where you are on the show and on some level you're being paid, but you're not really being paid. It's sort of like getting half of it because it also robs you of residuals, which is how a lot of writers live and survive in the long run. It's not just the front load amount of money that you get, it's the tail end of it. And so really, if something is in theory, on paper, an idea that you may be in development for a while, that's a huge issue in the long run, because you're not even sure if the thing you're working on is ever going to be produced. Yeah, I think we're going to potentially end up in a world where you have these working feature writers who have been working for studios and big projects for 20 years, and yet they don't have a single produced written by credit that they can point to. I don't want us to get to that same place with television writers where it's like, oh yeah, I've worked in four writer's rooms. Unfortunately, none of the shows were then picked up, but you know, I'm a, a seasoned television writer. I think that's going to do a lot to really kind of detract from <laughs> writing as a profession and the le- legitimacy of it and, and how it seems in people's eyes, I think. Absolutely. And and that also is a huge bump in terms of selling yourself to be staffed on the next project. Because unless you worked on uh, untitled Marvel series that didn't get picked up and you have Marvel in the name and at least there's a little bit of cachet, 90% of shows that are going to be in development hell and not get picked up don't have that cachet. They don't have that brand attached to them. So it's almost like what's the difference on paper to the recipient between this show and the web series that you worked on or whatever project that you're working on that's in development. We are all working on projects, quote unquote, in development, but there's a level of legitimacy that is given when a show is being produced that doesn't necessarily exist in those mini rooms. Because again, these mini rooms are almost trying again to justify their own existence in a way. It's sort of like, all right, let me pay you to pitch me something and see if I want to buy it, as opposed to let me spend all this amount of time and money and energy, especially creatively speaking, to generate and write the scripts for months and months. And then I don't know if I'll uh, pick it up. It's really a waste. And uh, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer on this, but it actually is kind of a huge issue. Right. Yeah. Those mini rooms are effectively glorified extended development just with more people. So obviously they can be great opportunities too. Perhaps, you know, people can get in when they wouldn't have been able to get into an existing show, but it is a worrying trend that we we do need to keep an eye on. So now that we've identified the issue of these shorter seasons and then how that impacts you as a writer, let's also take a look at the impact it's having on uh, the business side and distribution of these television shows. So the first thing is that, uh, especially for streaming now, even if you do get a full season of 22 or 13 or whatever it is ordered, the streamers have this habit of breaking things down into releases or drops instead of putting a full season out at once. You know, they're splitting these much bigger seasons into these tiny little pieces because it keeps the show at the top of the trending. It reinvigorates interest in it every three months. Instead of dropping all 22 episodes at once, they're going to do you know, six episodes here, six episodes in three months time, another six episodes, etc. you know, because that's just how their algorithm works instead of it being really popular for a week and everyone binges 20 episodes and then it disappears for a full year. And you can actually see that recently on a lot of those Netflix type shows like Sabrina, uh, where they essentially cut things in half. And it's actually interesting because part of it, I do believe stems from linear TV. If you look at a show like Breaking Bad or Lost, they kind of did the same thing, except linearly, where they would have those seasons and then they would do, all right, let's do a whole batch of six episodes and then wait three months before we're doing the back half of those uh, three or six episodes. The idea was to essentially mirror this uh, quote-unquote binge mentality on linear TV before binge mentality even existed, obviously. But I do believe this whole drop system, even though 
though, in the, it makes sense in terms of the algorithm and so forth. In terms of user consumption, I don't think it necessarily matches the way people watch TV because now a lot of people are waiting for those episodes to be done before watching a whole season. They want to binge the whole season before starting one episode or two episodes and so forth. And so if you're waiting on part two of a season, you have a lot less incentive to watch part one before part two even drops. And so I feel like Arrested Development was a primary example of something where you had part one and that created a lot of buzz because the rest of development was back on Netflix and so forth. And then part two dropped, I think a whole year later and nobody talked about it. Nobody even, I don't know how many people even knew, you know, it had dropped on Netflix, but it loses a lot of that momentum that you have when you are in the conversation week after week after week, or at the very least in that capsule, in that moment where you are dropping the full season. Yeah, and just briefly going back to its impact on writers, especially what we see with these kind of things now in the animation world, for example, is that a studio will hire a writer's room for, say, 30 episodes. And so they'll put them in a room and they'll crank all of that out. And then they will break those 30 episodes down into six seasons and release five episodes at a time on their streaming service or whatever it happens to be. So they've effectively then skirted around a lot of the provisions that are in place for, you know, business affairs and contracts and that sort of thing about, well, every season we're going to get a pay bump and we're going to get a title bump and whatever. It's like, oh, no, no, no. You know, we just, this is one production period. This is 30 episodes of a production period. And this is what you're going to get the entire time. And then maybe when we order another production period, you'll get a bump and they can just turn it into however many seasons they want. And I think that that's a little bit shady. Exactly. Yeah. That type of cost saving measure is a huge red flag, especially not just in terms of the title bump, but just the sheer amount of salary that you're missing out on, especially if it's that yearly season, you're essentially being robbed of every season that is being uh, collapsed into that one moment that you're writing that season for. And so that's a really worrying trend. Uh, it's not just in animation, actually. It's also in drama, in one hour and even half hours, where you're seeing these shows that it's akin to the, the writer's room thing that we talked about, the development cycle, where they're bumping everything into this, let's say, six-month period, and you're going to write out X amount of episodes in that X-month period, and then that's it then you're done, you should be able to move on. And they're using the content that you produced in that short amount of time to justify X seasons of that content without genuinely paying you for multiple seasons of that content. And to that idea, another thing I want to mention is sort of the self-fulfilling prophecy that happens because of all this. And in essence, uh, because you drop those seasons at a certain period of time and you are losing that momentum, that means on some level, like the Arrested Development example I had mentioned before, you are losing that audience momentum, that discussion, that audience interest, and therefore you're losing viewership. And therefore, you're losing the incentive to renew a show, and therefore, you are essentially canceling shows a lot faster. Now, we've already talked about how Netflix obviously doesn't need to have a one show that lasts for 100 episodes as opposed to 10 shows that last for 10 episodes. But nonetheless, they do have that shorter fuse in terms of canceling shows, of ending shows that don't bring viewers then and now. And it's not just about you know the length of the show in terms of number of seasons, but it's also in terms of how much impact it has when those season drops happen. And so when you're spreading those drops out, especially within the same show, you are actually spreading it thin. You are losing the bankability. In my mind, it's actually the opposite effect that happens where because you are uh, saturated with either you 
week, every month, you're getting a new season or a, a new show, and then you're part of a new show, you end up being disconnected and feeling less interested in watching those shows. And so it's sort of this like weird effect where because of you're trying to milk out this one show for as long as possible with as few as possible of episodes and seasons, that's actually a detriment ultimately in terms of the quality and the audience engagement. Yeah, absolutely. And to that point of that kind of shorter cancellation trigger, we touched on this before, but you know, streaming services that rely on subscription money like Netflix have no real interest in making long running shows that go past two or three seasons maybe and that's because they don't need that depth of audience that a traditional network broadcaster did with those millions of viewers for the huge ratings to sell advertising spots at inflated prices you know what they need instead is the the largest breadth of viewers to get the most number of total subscriptions they don't make more money the more content you watch they just want enough different niche pieces of content that they're pulling in the broadest possible audience it's like uh, if you ever heard that saying from that circus master pt barnum you know he had something for everybody. He had the elephants and he had the lions and he had the, the acrobats and all that sort of thing so that the broadest possible audience would come rather than a million people showing up just to see some really great lions. Right. And ultimately, that's why I describe Netflix as the OTT equivalent of a network because cable networks have that niche. They have that brand. Execution-wise, going to be you know disputed, but sci-fi, the sci-fi network, in theory, is a science fiction network, for example. And GSN is a game show network. And you have those very specific niches and brands of cable, whereas something like CBS and NBC, even though you, know, you have a little bit of an idea of what their shows are going to be like, you know, their idea is to reach as many people as possible because historically speaking, they are the broadcast network. They're the main networks. And so Netflix is akin to that in the sense of they want to get as much content as possible to cast the widest of nets, as opposed to some of the OTTs that are really targeting that niche and, and that specific audience retention. Now, obviously we're getting to the point where we have so many OTTs that it's really, it's basically like having another cable package now. But nonetheless, that's essentially why they're having so many of those shows, it's akin to that network idea where they're really trying to get as much content as possible, not because broadcast networks had a lot of content necessarily, but because they were casting as much of a wide net as Netflix is. Now, not only does all this impact the business and the writing side, but also creatively speaking, it has a tremendous amount of influence on it. So let's really look at how those diminishing of amount of episodes and seasons and so forth have an impact on creativity. So obviously this whole situation has a huge impact on how you think about your shows creatively, whether you're a staff writer in the room or whether you're a creator who's going out and pitching a series to someone like Netflix, knowing that you're probably not going to get that 100 episode show anymore, that those kind of don't really exist anymore. So I think sometimes people are going into this planning for these uh, particular close arcs. You know, they're not limited series, but they are an episodic series that might only have really three seasons of, of content with a particular planned endpoint in the same way that Mike Schur kind of had in mind for the good place. And, you know, creatively, I think that puts people in a bit of a stranglehold sometimes because a lot of the time shows need that space to find themselves, especially once they're actually running and they're on air. You know, if you look at the first season of Parks and Rec versus the rest of the show, it's such a huge difference. And that's when it really hit its stride is season two onwards. Mike Schur in the article mentions stuff like episode 77 of Lost, The Constant. You know, sometimes shows really need that space to do different and interesting things creatively rather than just being racing to fit everything in in every season, constantly in fear of whether they're going to get the 
the next season or not, let alone actually plan for some kind of long, rewarding story or character arc. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like that's actually a myopia that we're having uh, overall about TV shows and the way they're working now, where it's that classic idea of, all right, a whole season is actually now, it's just one book, right? And we have uh, 10 chapters of that one book, and we have no distinctive features about every any of those chapters slash episodes. And really, uh, actually, this brings me back to our episode we did on the art of the episode, but essentially a show needs to show value intrinsically within each episode. And if you are just having this long tail arc of a whole season or like limited series, for example, and it's a a 10 episode run or a two season 10 episode run or something like that, you're going to be hard pressed to justify, you know, why episode two is different from episode three, as opposed to chapter two is different from chapter three. And that's why something like Lost is an interesting example, because ultimately Lost on some level is a procedural show, even though it is heavily serialized, you can make the case that it actually every episode justifies its own existence. It has its own beginning, middle, and it features a specific character, a specific storyline, and a specific engine of that episode, of the show rather. And so The Constant is a great example of something that would only happen on a network show that lasts for 100 plus episodes. And you don't even need 100 episodes. You can do something like that with a 22 episode type season. Something like The Good Wife is a show that I really admire in part because they're able to reinvent the legal procedural drama model. But the only way they are able to do that is because they have that 20 episode leeway uh, in front of them where they can play with the engine of the show, where they can play with the structure of the show, where they can play with the characters and have that freedom and ability to express themselves in a way that if they were forced to tell that six episode series, or rather the six episode limited run version of Alicia's story, it'd be probably a dramatic miniseries, but it'd be a completely different kind of show than The Good Wife really is. And I think you can actually see that in something like The Good Fight, which is the spinoff of The Good Wife on an OTT like CBSL Access. And they've done a wonderful job at sort of marrying both of those worlds where it's actually a more limited number of episodes. I think it's about 10 or 13 episodes depending on the season. And yet they still keep that episodic idea where they have that you know, overall that season arc, but they are able to justify every episode individually and play with that freedom. And we're seeing how successful they are because I think The Good Fight is now the longest CBS All Access original show, I believe. And they're probably going to continue for at least five or six seasons, uh, which again, for an OTT type show is almost unheard of. Yeah. And look, I don't want to pretend that this is some sort of new thing. You know, even with uh, broadcasters and network TV, you would sometimes write the first 13 episodes and then be waiting on tenderhooks to hear if the network is going to order you for the back nine. So you have to plan specifically to have some big mid-season cliffhanger that's going to keep people interested. And then the back nine, you know, you don't know if you're going to get that second season. So people had always kind of been living in that kind of fear of how far ahead can we plan creatively. But just knowing now that the the industry and the landscape is such that uh, if you are writing for a streaming service or an OTT that you're probably never going to get more than two seasons, then I think that stifles a lot of creativity and it means that people are taking a lot less risks creatively and we end up with less interesting things as a result. Right, because essentially you're just telling that closed-ended story because you only have so many episodes and so you're really focusing almost on the surface layer of it. You're only focusing on the A story and B story of it as opposed to almost the meta story of it. Even something like Watchmen, actually I really uh, appreciate it because it's kind of a counterexample everything we're saying. But nonetheless, I think Damon Lindelof is great. He creates those shows that 
play with the formula, that play with the engine, that play with the structure of it to really redefine what really the show is on some level. Like The Leftovers is another great example I've quoted many times before, where they're playing with that formula almost like a network type show would do. Something like Buffy. One of the most iconic episodes of Buffy is something like Hush. And Hush wouldn't happen if we didn't have 80 plus episodes before it even occurred on the show. And it's the same thing with Lost. Like you said, the, the constant. 77 episodes, like Mike Schur mentioned. That's something you can only get if you are having that leeway of playing with the formula, playing with the engine, or at least having writers who are able and have the education, quote unquote, of playing with that formula through a network show. I think the reason why Damien Lindelof is so successful on cable and uh, especially HBO shows like Watchmen and Leftovers is in part because of his experience on a network show and playing with that long tail arc and long tail series that spans a hundred episodes. And now he can play with the formula in a much more constrained amount of time. Whereas a lot of people, a lot of writers up and coming, they don't have that experience. A lot of them have never worked on any network show. They've only worked on cable shows. Uh, and so I feel like that is robbing you from that experience. And therefore, because it's robbing you from that experience, you can't really delve deeper into the creativity of those hundred plus episode uh, shows. Yeah, exactly. And I think, look, we're, overall, we're painting a pretty negative picture of this whole situation, and we certainly don't want to bum everyone out and make you think that, you know, the sky is falling and the TV industry is ending because of these shorter episode arcs. I think, you know, the industry always has these big changes, these big pushes towards different formats and different things, and we inevitably adapt to it. I think it's just a matter of being aware of what's going on, how that's going to impact you as a writer professionally and creatively, and being able to adapt to it. I mean, like you said, Alex, it's not all negative. Sometimes you do find these great examples of shows that have been able to adapt to the new format like Watchmen. And, you know, perhaps you can make the argument too that with the the incredible breadth of 400, 500 shows, all with their own particular niches uh, running for X amount of episodes, maybe there is more opportunity for some writers to be able to get in on those shows because they have some particular experience that relates to that niche episode rather than struggling to be one of the 1,000 people trying to get into the Frasier writer's room or whatever that happens to be. So it's not all negatives, but I think overall it's a bit of a worrying trend and one that we need to be aware of, uh, adapt to, and perhaps uh, push back on in the union to protect writers from. Exactly. Yeah. And, and to me, that was what uh, I was pitching earlier about, for example, the, the staff writer slot, things like that to really address directly these concerning trickle down effects from the episode number order. Uh, because overall, as we've talked about in this episode, it appears like a lot of people are obviously talking about the creative aspect and the fact that, oh, we're getting the shorter episode uh, seasons. And so it's more easily bingeable. And we're talking about those uh, creative content type uh, effects, but we're not really talking as as much about the direct effect on writers uh, as we were doing earlier in this episode. And on top of it being a warning trend, I'm also a bit worried about sort of uh, the union and other people not necessarily talking in depth about how that directly impacts access, uh, how that directly impacts upper mobility, and how that directly impacts availability of work and all those different issues that come into play because they are all intertwined. It's not one or the other. It's everything is true at once. Everything we've talked about about here. It's not just one thing, it's everything. Uh, and so that's what I'm a bit worried about. And like you said, Nick, it's not necessarily something that, you know, that's not the end of the industry by any means. In fact, I feel like the industry is very adaptable and very malleable in many ways, but it is a bit of a worrying trend overall in the sense of just access. 
Yeah. And I suspect by the time the next MBA negotiation rolls around in three years, we're really going to start to see some of the clear effects of this on opportunities for writers and on access and diversity and things like that. And it's probably going to be one of the the issues that we have to bring to the table to negotiate with, especially as these streamers start to consolidate and really take over the, the landscape as broadcasters. That is something that's already happened. Uh, those effects are already occurring. So that's why I feel like some people are a bit behind on some level. And I feel like they are also ahead on some of it because the WGA NBA negotiation, as we mentioned at the top, already tackled uh, some of the exclusivity clauses. So they are addressing some of it. I'm just, and I'm hopeful actually because of the new uh, board of directors and so forth, that there is going to be a more of a focus towards lower levels and sort of the back half of the WGA as opposed to protecting or overprotecting the producer levels, which I mean, we all love a producer level, uh, but nonetheless, the, that access ability is essentially the producers of the future. And so we need to protect those classes as well. Right, exactly. We've uh, had a big fight over packaging and all that sort of thing to protect the, the creators and the producers. And I think now it's time to shift that focus to the little guy moving forward. Agreed. Cosign. And on that note, don't forget that we are on Patreon. So if you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Paper Team via our Patreon page at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You will get access to our monthly paper patron podcast and cheat sheets. So you can get all of this and more at paperteam.co slash Patreon. And uh, also that way we can keep producing a great show like this one for you every week. Yeah, so thanks to our listeners for taking the time to tune in. You can get all the show notes, including that Vanity Fair article uh, for this episode at paperdinoclo slash 186. And as always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas for future episodes, you can always send them to ask at paperteam.co. And what are we doing next week? Uh, next week, we're catching up with our good friend, Paul Chang, our uh, former mentee uh, from the paper tease process. And uh, we're hearing about what he's been up to for the last year or so since we've uh, caught up with him. So that's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be amazing. So tune in next week for that. See you then.